You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, presenting interviews with famous, fascinating, influential personalities from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. The first big routine everybody remembered was uh, starving people and yes. him telling them to move. Now, we'll move you. We're not going to send any more food out here. And the funny thing is, is that in Sam's mind, uh, that was the answer. The late comedian Sam Kinison's brother, Bill Kinison, today on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. It was an HBO Young Comedian special in late summer 1985 that launched a young comedian to national fame. Let's have a nice warm reception for Sam Kinison. Okay, here we are, Sammy. Sam Kinison became wildly popular almost overnight and for the next several years was one of America's favorite stand-up comedians. Tragically, Sam Kinison's life ended abruptly in April of 1992 in a horrible car crash in California. His brother, Bill Kinison, was in the car behind him and witnessed the accident. Two years later, Bill Kinison wrote a book about his little brother called Brother Sam, and that's when I had a chance to meet him. So here now from 1994, Bill Kinison. I've got it at home somewhere. I don't know where it is. I can't find it because we have thousands of video cassettes. But we have on tape that HBO special, the Young Comedian special. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, the Rita Rudner and Louie Anderson and Bob Nelson. And, uh, and I think even Yakov Smirnoff was yeah, on that right. show. that's right. And, and Sam. And, uh, Every one of them did well on that show. Oh, yeah. It was they a ter- went on and had good careers. So I'm still doing show. great. And it doesn't surprise me to read in this book how, much, how, how, what, how explosive the effect of that show was. I can see it. Uh, that that six minutes out of that six minutes, and I'm talking about immediately within a month, uh, we had a uh, we were in the movie with uh, Rodney back to school, but we also signed a uh, a six show Saturday Night Live deal, uh, first stand up ever to do a stand up routine on Saturday Night Live. We did a uh, we signed six shows on David Letterman. Uh, we signed a uh, a four record deal with Warner Brothers and a uh, four special deal with HBO, all within a month of that of that six minutes. Yeah, I, I have to tell you also parenthetically, the first thing I thought of when I heard him that, I thought, he's terribly funny, but my voice is hurting just <laughs> listening to him. Just uh, th- That must hurt to scream the way he did. Well, he preached like that for seven years. I think he got got his voice uh, uh, accustomed to it. The guy was never never hoarse. I never one time ever seen him in a show, you know, where he goes, you know, somebody's got to get me some honey and lemon or something. I, I can't do it. I, mean, it. I guess he was just conditioned to it. We, I'm the same way. I mean, I li- I'll tell my friends, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll tell each other the lines, you know, we'll recite our favorite parts of the routine, and we can't do it in his voice because it hurts. And it will. I think it's it's certainly surprised me, and it will surprise the people who don't already know what he did before he became a comedian. Seven years, he was a preacher, an evangelist, and pastored a little bit, but mostly an evangelist for seven years. And I guess on a serious note, there are those who will assume that, given that background, and then given especially the kind of language that he used and the kind of concepts that he found humorous. There are serious people who will sincerely believe he mu- he must have turned against God. He must have he must have maybe the devil is in him somehow. No, he uh, he Sam was not religious. Uh, he wasn't a religious person. I know that sounds contradictory, but uh, he was a spiritual person. He died uh, thinking he was a believer and believing he was a believer and had a relationship with God. Uh, he was anti-religion, uh, and I think he was that because of his experiences uh, while he was preaching. Because he wasn't very successful at all. And uh, and he kind of held the system responsible for that. Uh, 
other than that, I'll have to admit, I mean, when we went down and the first time I saw him do comedy, he'd been doing it maybe six weeks, and all of a sudden you have this language. And that is not the way we were raised. I mean, we were raised in a Pentecostal preacher's home that if you said darn, I mean, it was a whack in the mouth. I mean, this was before they had worried about child abuse. It was like, pow. And, uh, uh, you know, you just we just didn't do that. And so when I first time I seen him up there talking about uh, blankety this and blankety that, and afterwards, you know, I, I remember telling him, going, man, you know, you can be funny without uh, talking like that. And he goes, we're not in church. I can do what I want to do, man. I can say what I want to say. And even back then, you have to remember when he was talking like that, a comedian still wasn't talking like that. Now you got more of them on HBO. So, I mean, even then, he was getting he was getting banned from the comedy store, I mean, from the comedy annex down in Houston because of the kind of language that he used. Well, going back to that 85 special, I remember not that it was exactly uh, G-rated, but most everybody else was still on pretty safe ground yeah. with, with their material. Yeah, and sure was. And Sam was right out on the edge. And, and we loved him for it. Well, I think that what happened is, is that we could identify with him. Uh, not Maybe not with the language, but we could identify with the subjects. The first big routine everybody remembered was uh, uh, starving people and yes. him telling them yes. to, uh, to move. Send them U-Hauls, some luggage, and send them a guy out there that goes, Hey, you know, we've been driving out here every day with your food for like the last, uh, I don't know, 30, 40 years. And we were driving out here a day across the desert, and it occurred to us there wouldn't be world hunger if you people would live where the food is! Funny thing is, is that in Sam's mind, uh, that was the answer. The answers were simple to Sam, and uh, why don't we just move them? I mean, they live in a desert. Let's move them where there's plenty of food in the world. Just got to get them where the food is. So he gets up and does a whole routine about that. You know, about you know, you know, the director can feed him. You know, the director's got a Sam to go. Don't feed him yet. Don't feed him yet. <laughs> and uh, you know, Sam never ever rolled a routine. He never sat down and rolled a routine. Everything he did was either his viewpoints, which many times were politically incorrect. Or was his life experiences? I was just going to say, I, I, I read in here for the first time, I didn't know this before, that apparently the, the scream in the face of the people in the audience came from going out on stage one night just in frustration over his own relationship. Yeah, his second wife and he had been arguing for, oh man, a day or two, and so he went up at the comedy store to, to do his routine and to pick up his $35 check, which is what Mitzi pays him. And, uh, and so while he's up there, but he's really mad. And... Uh, and so he sees this couple that are right down at the front stage that are holding hands and they're all lovey-dovey and all this kind of stuff. And it's driving him nuts to the point that he finally quits, his, quits doing his comedy, goes down and asks this guy, said, you know, do you love her? And the guy goes, uh, yeah, well, you thinking about marrying her? Well, I, I might marry her. And so Sam says, well, if you think about uh, getting married and uh, uh, having a house and little kids right and all that kind of stuff, I want you to remember this face. Remember this face. And still is out of anger. He's just mad and just screams uh, in this guy's face where well, the crowd goes nuts. And from then on, we got the scream. You know, it worked, and he did it again the next night. And from then on, we had the trademark scream. Now, where along the way did he become, instead of the screamer, what, how do, did he get labeled the beast? I, the, I'll never know. The, uh, the big situation we had is the first time Sam did Saturday Night Live. Uh, we had had an agent, Marty Klein, that had contacted us after we got all this heat going, which Marty was a great guy. He's, he died, uh, I guess, about a year ago now with APA. And uh, Marty Klein contacted us, and I guess Marty Klein's uh, uh, promotional idea was to call in the Beast. Well, you know, we came out of church, and so the Beast had, had serious connotations <laughs> Might as well us. put 666 on yeah, your forehead. Yeah, basically, you know, the Antichrist. And uh, 
So when Sam, you know, kept seeing Saturday Night Live announced, you know, on Saturday, they wouldn't even call him Sam Kennison on Saturday, on Saturday night. It'll be the beast on Saturday Night Live. So he calls Marty and goes, uh, hey, dude, I told you, I don't want you to, uh, you know, I don't want that label. And, uh, you know, I want to be Sam Kennison. And uh, so Marty's like, well, you know, Bill, Sam, you have to, you know, let us uh, make whatever. And we also decided we want you to not wear a beret. And so Sam's like, hey, hey, I'll tell you what I've decided. And, <laughs> and just fires the guy on the spot for first Saturday Night Live. Uh, sure, you know, he's going, that my contract? Where did I get back? And everything else. But the beast stuck after that because it had been on television for a week. And so there for a long time we had to deal with uh, Sam Kennison, the beast. And well, we don't know where it came from except maybe the scream or, or whatever. But that was Marty Klein's idea. Sam, I gather, was not the easiest person to get along with at times. Um, it all depends on if you went along with him. He surrounded himself with yes people. And I, being his brother and his older brother besides, I probably was the only one that uh, uh, could come in and go, you know, this is not a good idea. And not have him just go, go nuts because, you know, he would, he, then he would think about it. But, I mean, he, he didn't like people that, uh, you know, that didn't agree with him. And the best way to hang around him was if uh, everything he went, and, you know, if he went, man, this is a great counter. You know, and everybody goes, yeah, that is a great counter, you know, and then, <laughs> then you were good buddies. But he, yeah, that's not he exactly, surrounded himself with those kind of people. That's not exactly unique in show business. Oh, no, no, no. They, you know, they, you, you kind of exploit that, that kind of power. I think everybody does to a certain extent. After this short break, Bill Kinnison describes the childhood episode that may have made Sam Kinnison who he was. Now back to my 1994 conversation with Bill Kinnison. One episode that you didn't go into a great deal of detail about, but I gather you see, feel in some way shaped his life was uh, his truck accident at age three. Yeah, he um, he was hit by a truck. We uh, we lived in the housing projects, uh, started out in the housing projects, same projects that Richard Pryor uh, came out of. And uh, we were at school, and Sam was three, and I guess was playing outside, and his ball went in the street, and he went to get it and was hit by a truck. And end up with 30% brain damage and also end up with a grand mal epilepsy of which no one, no one until this book knew except the immediate family. His best friends didn't know it. His wives never knew it. Uh, his uh, girlfriends never knew it. But the really amazing thing was, is I was eight at the time, and I remember when they brought him home from the hospital a day or two later, I really thought they had switched kids. I mean, I really thought that they had got a kid that looked like Sam. And uh, something had happened to our brother, and that this was like to kind of soothe us. Says, well, here, here, you know, it's like a dog. Here, we got another black dog for you, <laughs> you know, another <laughs> poodle here for you. You know, it'll be just as good as the first one. And because Sam was so drastically different, I mean, he was he was a mellow, passive, uh, laid back. I mean, totally different from like the you know the two older brothers that he had. And uh, now all of a sudden he's aggressive. Uh, uh, he's ornery, he's hyper, he's unpredictable. Uh, he starts wetting the bed again until he's 14. He starts drooling at the age of, th of three again and uh, and totally changed his uh, his whole personality. And probably, and I really believe that if it hadn't been for that, we probably wouldn't have had the comedian uh, Sam Kennison. Probably he would have lost some teeth, uh, drove a tractor for Caterpillar <laughs> and be in Peoria, Illinois right now. But it did occur. I mean, you know, the, the, they they've done studies for for years on the, the the very thin line between insanity and genius, and and we don't know where that line is all the time because clearly, I mean, Sam was a comedic genius. Yeah, he really was. But you couple that with the fact that he did have some brain damage, and makes you wonder. I mean, where <laughs> that, that line is getting fuzzier and fuzzier all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I think I think you've described it. Uh, 
uh, perfect because his behavior, uh, even as an adult, was erratic. Uh, you know, he... But it comes back impulsive. to what you said a moment ago. He could do and say the things that normal people can't. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely... Well, had a, we, I, we were used to teasing that he was the Robert Redford of comedy, the natural, because uh, he could get up. He would be right here doing a show with you, and I, and I, I swear to you, Bill, that after, after three minutes... You'd, you'd fall in love with this guy. I mean, just uh, you, you cannot find a person that spent five minutes with him off stage that did not like him. And he just had that kind of a personality uh, that he could win you over. And uh, what he would do is if, you, if we were discussing something funny, he'd, he'd put it in the show tonight. And so he never had two shows alike. He might have 40% of the show where he'd do the same routines that people recognize. The rest of it's off-the-cuff stuff of whatever he was thinking about. But if he had that kind of a, pers- a winning personality that people just naturally liked him, why did he feel so insecure that he needed to to do self-destructive things? Because the only thing, only time he was ever successful was on stage. When he was doing comedy on stage, he was successful. Other than that, he was never successful. He wasn't successful in his relationships. Uh, he wasn't successful in the ministry. He was uh, wasn't successful financially, even though he made millions of dollars. He's always under financial pressure. Uh, the only success he knew was was on stage in comedy, and uh, and that, I think that kind of kept him healed and kept him together through the rest of his life. Was that uh, he would be on stage tomorrow night? That was his, you know, that was his motivation, and he could act out, you know, his inferiorities. I mean, uh, here he, you know, here he is, the uh, third in a family that we uh, we have an older brother that is that was as dynamic in the ministry as Sam was in comedy. Then you had me that was, uh, you know, I, I did well in athletics and, and was successful in business. Now comes along Sam, and, uh, you know, he doesn't do well at all. And uh, now you've got a younger brother that comes along that's like the, he's like the Tom Cruise of the family. He's the model. He works for Barbizon and, and all that stuff. Well, Sam still is the misfit. You know, he's the one that doesn't quite fit in in the family, even though he tries Everything else, our businesses and everything, he tries. It's not successful. At 25, he goes into comedy, and, and he's a hit right off the bat. And from then on, that was his success. Wow. And also, as an older brother myself, I, I just I, I can't imagine the kind of, of anguish to see your brother's death. I mean, just to, to, to witness an event like that, that that's, that's well, got to haunt you. Actually, it, it's soothing. I would have rather have been there. Than not been there, and the way it all happened, it was like it was supposed to happen. And you have to understand, in the last four years to his death, you know, we had had quite a bit of tragedies in our family. Our younger brother either committed suicide or was shot to death. Our stepfather, which was just like our father, uh, died the very next day after we buried him. My grandfather died. Uh, two years later, Sam died. And uh, you know, and again, we're a very spiritual family. I mean, we don't feel like this life is the end of it. Uh, you know, we really do feel like the next life is a better life. And being out there on the highway and seeing Sam, the things he said, the things that he did out there on that highway, it was like it was supposed to happen. He didn't suffer. Uh, he wasn't afraid of going to the next world and, and kept saying, uh, you know, and finally relented to it. Okay, 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 and, and died. And so, uh, you know, I miss him. I mean, I miss him uh, terribly. You know, a large part of it, he came... Uh, our brotherhood came before our marriages did. I mean, we're all all four boys end up in divorce, and and our marriage, uh, you know, the brotherhood was was stronger than than any of our relationships. And to lose, 
you know, that was a, was losing a big part of me. But the other part of me that, you know, believes in, in spirituality, believes in God, goes, hey, you know, I can't question it. I mean, it happened, and, and I believe there's somebody bigger than us in control that goes, you know, this is time. That's time to do that. And this bizarre irony that it's another truck. Yeah, and also, I'll tell you another bizarre thing is that uh, probably, oh, man, six, seven years before that, he flipped a car over several times five miles from this spot that he died out in the desert so i mean you know there was a lot of irony going here he's also hit by a, a young man that's been drinking and sam used to do all this drunk driving bitch we're gonna drink we're gonna drive how do you expect us to get home type of stuff and so i mean there's a whole lot of irony in, in where he died and how he died tell me if i'm being insensitive if the roles had been reversed if you had been the one who died in the accident and he had seen you would Sam be using that in his routine? Uh, Sam wouldn't have been able to handle it. Sam couldn't hardly handle Kevin dying. Uh, the last, uh, when Sam got married, which was five days before he died, I was his best man, and, and at the uh, party afterwards, I toasted he and his wife, and uh, he turned around and toasted me in front of everyone and, and said that uh, uh, Bill has not been my best brother, and he hasn't been my closest brother. That was my brother Kevin. And uh, I remember him saying that everything I had give up to take care of him and that he never had the opportunity to tell me how much that he really appreciated that. And uh, so I think that if it had been me in the, in the vehicle, which, which ordinarily would have been, I mean, I always took the lead. Sam always followed. If that would have been the way it would have been, I don't think Sam could have handled losing another brother. I just don't think he could have handled it. I think that uh, uh, he might have he uh, destroyed himself. Because he, he he felt responsible for Kevin's death, and he would have felt responsible for my death. I think that I think that the biggest loss, other than the Kennison family and to my mother, is uh, the loss to comedy. I mean, you either like Sam or you didn't like him. There wasn't a much middle road, but you're going to have to you have to look at comedy today and go. You know, we really miss him because it's got so generic. And I really think that the state of comedy now is that if Sam started over, he'd never make it. I don't think there'd be an opportunity for that for that comedy again. It's got so family oriented, which I'm not saying that's that's bad. Except we need every once in a while we need somebody to come along and go. Let's stretch the boundaries, good or bad. Let's stretch the boundaries a little bit. And I think that's where we really miss him at. And I miss him, you know, with the O.J. Simpson and Michael Jackson and Menendez brothers. I'd love to know the routines <laughs> yes. he'd come up with. That's where I miss him at. <laughs> And you can find easy Amazon links to Bill Kinnison's book and Sam Kinnison's comedy at our website, HeardEverything.com. And while you're at HeardEverything.com, be sure and listen to my interview about another iconic comedian who died too soon, my 2007 interview with Richard Pryor's daughter, Rain Pryor. Everyone's so related to him, and I think that's why people loved him, is that he was so truthful and so brought those people alive that you just wanted to laugh with him and hug him and of course we post new episodes here every monday wednesday and friday and you can find now i've heard everything on all major podcast platforms and thanks for listening next time on now i've heard everything he was one of the most notorious spies in american history and in the late 1980s john walker jr was sentenced to life in prison in 1988 i met and interviewed his daughter so next time on now i've heard everything my conversation with laura walker i think that most people believe that my dad was just sort of a mousy kind of guy who thought he was a james bond and 
he was extremely intelligent and he and he could pull off the James Bond because he just seemed to have that ability. He was a pretty evil man. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.